Listeners, we would like to thank our supporters on Patreon. That is Nick, Justin, Matt, Teddy, Paul, Grace, Sam, Jory, Shelley, Tara, Rachel, Abby, Peter, the Reverend Langenstein, Annalise, and Ian. Thank you for your money. It helps make the show happen. And if you other listeners want to help make the show happen, you can join our supporters over at patreon.com slash WTHIAP. If you do that, you will also get access to our patron-only podcast feed, which has had plenty of bonus content over there, including a two-parter on the movie Pleasantville, in which Ethan and I have a pretty solid discussion about all of the theories and interpretations of the movie and also Reese Witherspoon's acting. And you will also get access to Pillow Talk, which is the podcast that Ian and I record, which this week finally features Ian again. If you don't have the funds right now to support us on Patreon, you can also rate, review, and subscribe and share us on social media, or head to our website, WTHIAP.com, and check out our merch and support us that way, or just keep listening, because that's good too. And now, here's the show. One, two, five, nine! Father, preacher, servant, leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? Listeners, this week on the podcast, we have Annie Britton with us, Reverend Annie Britton. I'm so excited to have a conversation with you, Annie, about your ministry journey, about what ministry has looked like for you, and just how this all fits together. So welcome. We're excited to have you. Well, thanks so much, Joe. I am so glad to be here today with you. Wow, my my ministry journey. <laughs> I know that you've uh, you've asked other people questions in the past, so um, I'll cut right to the chase and say, I was about eight years old, sitting in a church in in Florida where I lived at the time, looking up at, uh, of course, the male minister, and I think it was a Baptist church. I have no recollection of that part, but deep in just in my own brain, I heard my own voice saying, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. Wow. I know it was a a very strange thing. Can I, can I pause you? Sure. Before we get into the narrative, I, that was such a great teaser. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners with just a little bit of context for who you are now? So we know where we're headed. Oh, sure. (laughs) Oh, sure. Why don't I do that first? I am ordained through the church within a church movement. Mm-hmm. Oh gosh, my ministry journey was centered in the United Methodist Church for quite some time. Uh, I served one church as a lo- licensed local pastor. Um, I currently am part of Church Within a Church and I have deep love for liturgy, mm. um, progressive, inclusive, beyond inclusive <laughs> liturgy, mm-hmm. um, music. I rewrite hymns all the time mm. and uh, am really, really interested in, in fact, fascinated by the ways that people make meaning in the world. Ooh, yeah. So that's who I am. Um, background, I am married. Uh, Terry and I have been married just over 18 years. Um, we are, at this point, we have one uh, dog in our lives. Um, we have had many 
many four-leggeds in the years we have been together. Mm. Uh, right now, I live in Florida uh, with uh, deep roots in New England. Yeah, that is so thinking, thinking to the story that you've just shared of being eight years old in Florida and like knowing this is what you want to do. I think that I had assumed that you grew up Methodist, but it sounds like maybe your background was a little more varied moving around. Oh, it was very varied. Um, I know that I was baptized in California where I was born in, um, a non-denominational church in the Ooh. 1950s, if you can imagine. So we went to churches, I think, close by to where we lived. Um, there was that church in California, and my only recollection of that was watching a baptism one day. And it was not an infant baptism. It was somebody who came and sat in a chair and over they went backwards and the water went flying. And I thought that was the coolest thing I had ever seen in my life. Yeah. Um, so then uh, we we moved to Florida and we did move back to, uh, to California again. Um, and I think we went to a Lutheran church there for a while. I think my mom tried to look for places where kids were welcome. And when we moved to, yeah, that would be a good thing of a mom to do. Um, <laughs> when we moved to Massachusetts, uh, back near where my mother's parents lived, we started attending a congregational church that, of course, morphed into a UCC church, sorry, UCC church later. Um, I found my way, <laughs> uh, in many of the varied ways that I have attempted, I had attempted to run away from that call to ministry, which never really, really left me. Mm. Um, one of the things that I really thought was that, um, I needed to find a place to be. Um, and what happened was that I played folk music in a pub and somebody from a Catholic church came and said that they needed somebody to play music for their, um, kids who were getting ready for first communion. And mm. they had a special mass for them every month. And all I had to do was show up the Saturday and teach them the music and then Sunday and do the music with them. I said, well, that's pretty cool. That would be a nice human thing for me to do. So I did and um, got really fascinated by the mass um, and loved working with the kids. Mm. When it was over, I realized I had not been churched for quite some time at that point um, I, that I missed. I missed something. Mm. And, um, and so because I loved liturgy, I absolutely loved liturgy. I joined the Catholic Church um, as a good Protestant. Uh, <laughs> I kept my questions. I, I never let go of the questions that I had because I, I did think about theology, not thinking that I was thinking about theology. Hmm. Anyway, um, I decided maybe being a nun would work for me in life. Ooh. So, um, I explored a couple of different orders. Um, 
and um, nothing worked. Nothing worked. Now, so while I'm a Catholic, I start hanging around with a bunch of United Methodist women. That's the link now. Um, ah. Who were an a cappella singing group of women in Maine. And um, they, I said, well, you know, I, I don't think I have the best voice in the world, but I got a, I got a good guitar. And so they decided, okay, yeah, we'll branch off a little and, uh, and do both a cappella and, uh, and some accompanied music. And I worked with them for, for several years. And that was my tie to the United Methodist Church. So as, my, um, as I was evolving to the point of understanding, gee, Annie, yeah, being a nun isn't going to work. Um, joining a, an order isn't going to work because the call to preaching never left me. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. I, I myself have w- wondered about being a nun over the course of my life. Like maybe that <laughs> devotion is enough. But no, I can't keep my mouth shut. You know, the call to preaching is not, does not leave me either. Right. And, you know, my, my choice, I did not explore the order deeply, but I really wanted to be a Benedictine and be really quiet. Mm. Um, well, I, for all the wrong reasons, I was trying to run away from the call. Ah. <laughs> that is to not be quiet, to preach. And um, I had a wonderful priest and uh, let him know that I just, I, I had this call and I needed to follow it. And um, he understood. And um, he said, I have to say a bunch of words to keep you here. And uh, he <laughs> said, and I know you're not going to stay. He was just a wonderful, wonderful man. Hmm. And, uh, and off I went. Um, to Boston University School of Theology. I, I had preached a bit along the way um, as, as a lay preacher and invited into a pulpit here or there uh, for both my music and my, and my preaching. I knew I could do that part and mm-hmm. that I loved liturgy so much and had been tinkling around writing with it f- for a while, but... Um, it was the academic part that terrified me. Hmm. Um, and thanks to many, many different professors uh, who understand what it's like to uh, enter seminary when you're not a young student, um, I made my way through. So at what, what age did you end up at Boston? <laughs> uh, I was 44 when I started seminary. Wow. Yeah. So... <laughs> This is something, I mean, we, having gone to Wesley Theological Seminary in D.C., they do a great job of uh, working with people who are kind of across the the age spectrum, the experience spectrum. Um, And so there's a lot of people who do this as kind of a second career, but it kind of sounds like you were in this orbit for such a long time. Did it feel like you were changing careers to go to seminary or... I would say it was probably about my 10th career. Uh, <laughs> uh, again, I worked lots of very different jobs in my life. And uh, my college degree was in, they came up with this fancy communication arts and sciences um, at Bridgewater State College uh, in Bridgewater, Massachusetts, where I already lived. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a theater major and I specialized in stage management. 
and tech theater. Ethan's wife, Beth, does that. That's her. <laughs> She's a stage manager, tech person. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. So, you know, uh, being in front of crowds, I could do because I tried to make sure I, I did a little acting every year mm. just to remember that, you know, working with actors is and tech people needs to have a framework of, of respect. Um, and techies and actors don't always get along as well as they could. Yeah. So that was, I, I actually, that was part of, um, I think it was part of ministry for me, if I had to reframe it now. Um, there wasn't any religion attached to it. It was how do you get a group of people to work together? Yeah, yeah. That makes complete sense. Yeah. <laughs> so being a pastor, I love, I, what the hell is a pastor? Um, <laughs> I just love that, the question in that, mm -hmm. um, which for me, my being a pastor, um, the majority, well, yes, the majority of my ordained life, I did not have bricks and mortar. Mm. I did not have a building. Um, I worked, I wrote liturgies, I guest preached. Um, I was on site for one uh, United Methodist group, um, and that was that was fascinating. I'd love to talk about them for a, for a second because yeah. they they don't exist anymore. It was called Cambridge Welcoming Ministries, and hmm. um, it was through the New England Conference, and it was supposed to be a mission to LGBTQ folk, hmm. and um, and the folks who are a part of Cambridge Welcoming reframed that very quickly that they were a mission too the United Methodist Church, uh, trying to, uh, to help, help folks understand what inclusion is. Um, and it was an amazingly progressive group. Um, I, would, I would probably shout out um, Reverend Tiffany Steinwert, who is, uh, who is in California at this point in time, I believe. And, oh, my gosh, Tiffany and someone else started it and um, and guided it into life in Cambridge and then in Somerville, all right around Boston. And um, just a wonderful group of folks who were just trying to uh, to be church together uh, in a real progressive way. Hmm. At what point in time, and if this is too personal, let me know, at what point in time did you realize that your sexuality was going to play a role in what ministry looked like for you? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I was in seminary. I was at, at, at uh, BU, and uh, Terry and I met in 2001. Um, and... Terry and I found our way to be together um, 2002 and were married in uh, 2005. So all during this, I'm in, I'm in seminary and um, it was hard. It was mm -hmm. hard. Um, I could still... In, in, in those years, 2002, 2003, I still couldn't be out. Mm -hmm. And um, in 2003, 
I was appointed um, first as, I think it was just pulpit supply, and then as a licensed local pastor to a local church. And, um, and those who did know said, Annie, just don't say anything. Hmm. So I didn't say anything. Um, although <laughs> I just got to say, um, it was a halftime appointment. They were some of the most wonderful people I have ever, ever, ever met in my life. I miss them to this day. If any of them are listening, mm. um, and I think it was far more a don't ask, don't tell than anything else because I um, I rented a room in Terry's house, 40 miles away from the church. Wow. Yep. That was uh, that was how that worked. So um, it was it was never easy, but uh, we were definitely accepted and loved. Terry has a fantastic singing voice, so um, you know <laughs> uh, can fit into any any church choir anywhere, anytime. Um, when it all broke for me. Um, and I, I, if it's okay, if I tell a story of when it all broke for me, yeah, um, I had, you know, I met with district committees and all of this. And I was, I was in the ordination track. I was on the ordination track and, um, I would meet with them and I'd go home and just feel awful because mm. I wasn't telling the truth. Mm. I just wasn't telling the truth. Um, and it just never sat right with me, ever. Um, especially, uh, it was a Sunday. It was during summer, and during summer, we just had arts and crafts projects for the kids when they would usually go down to, uh, to Sunday school. Um, so off they went, and I finished the church service, and uh, everybody went left the sanctuary and these two girls came running up and they were so excited. They had made a card for me and decorated it. And it said, pastor Annie, open it up. You're the best pastor ever with their names. And, you know, even in any world, I know I'm not the best pastor ever. But to them, I was. And uh, mm. so I, I loved them up and said, oh, thank you, thank you. Oh, this is so great. And they left and I broke down in tears. Hmm. Because I wasn't just lying. I was lying to children. <sighs> and that, for me, was a, uh, a place where I could not remain. I just couldn't. Um, because at some point in time, they were going to understand that Terry, that Annie, Pastor Annie, as they called me, didn't just rent a room in Terry's house. And they were also going to understand that the law of their church did not allow Pastor Annie and Terry to have a life together as a married couple. And have Pastor Annie remain as Pastor Annie. Mm. And I, I didn't want to do that to them at 9, 10, and 11 years old. I figured that's their parents' job. Yeah. Um, 
because it's it was that important. It was that important. Um, now, I've been very serious here for a minute. I have to tell you that after I had been gone for about three months before I saw any of them again, which is a whole nother story for a whole nother uh, podcast, I think. Okay. But when I, I had a phone call with, uh, with the woman who ran the Sunday school, and we didn't usually talk about church at all. Uh, we had stayed in touch. Um, she said, I just need you to know, Annie, that the kids are still really, really disappointed in you. And of course, my heart sank. And I said, okay, I, I can live with that. I understand. And she said, no, 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 you don't understand. What they are disappointed about was that they were not invited to your wedding. When do you and Terry got married? We got married <laughs> quietly while I was pastoring there. And so the biggest thing that these kids were upset about was that they didn't get to come to my wedding. That's something about kids. It's something about human, mm -hmm. human behavior that calls us to love. It doesn't call us to exclusion of those who are different. So <laughs> Ooh. Ooh, I'm like, I am <laughs> trying not to cry loudly on mic. <laughs> that's, that's so beautiful. Well, we did just dive right in there, didn't we? Um, <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I have hope. I have hope for change um, mm. and transformation and all of those things. Um, and I think some of it had to really, really, really not. Uh, no, I don't think some of it. I know that all of it had to begin with my own transformation hmm. to, to understand what it would cost me to tell the truth and to make the choice that telling the truth was worth the cost. And hmm. that's how I look at theology. That's how I look at the sacred stories that we hold, that telling the truth, um, well, we know it can literally get you killed, but it can also get you thrown out of a lot of places. And yeah. that, was, that had to be worth it for me. Um, and it was, and they did. <laughs> and, um, and here we are, I was... Uh, I was removed from my appointment uh, in September of 2006, and um, and now the Methodist Church is changing. Now it's been changing all along, mm -hmm. um, and there are I'm I'm in the number of hundreds, maybe thousands, who were not accepted, uh, were not allowed. Um, by a system, yeah. by a system. And um, it's nice to see a system evolving. Um, and that's about as close as I get to the Methodist church now, um, because I won't tell you that there isn't still pain. Um, right. There has not, never been, nor do I ever expect there will be an, a real I'm sorry. 
especially yeah. for many of the big players uh, in my little story. I have a question. Yes. Well, I have a couple of questions. Sure. So the first, the first thing that strikes me, and uh, this might not be a question that either of us can answer, um, but I, I had a very similar feeling to to what you had about. I just, I, I am not capable of lying <laughs> anymore about like who I am and what I'm doing. Now I'm bisexual in a straight passing relationship. It would be very easy for me to just be straight passing and be an advocate on the inside but I was deeply incapable of doing that like mm -hmm. I as soon as I was out I wanted to be out um because I I think visibility matters all sorts of things along those lines um but also like it was very important to me to kind of own this for myself and yet I know I mean we both know that there have been closeted UMC clergy who went their whole <laughs> careers being closeted um and I also like I again know people who are currently closeted who are trying to figure out um can I go through the ordination process and just say the right thing without um, with uh, lie without lying, you know, that kind of that kind of thing. And mm -hmm. I couldn't do that on my paperwork. I just really struggled to mentally do that. Do you I mean, do you think that for people who I, I don't know if you have experience knowing people in the LGBTQ community who who have stayed closeted and like found that to be sustainable? Do you know what what? what sustains somebody who's closeted is there something about you and me where where we just couldn't and there's a way to oh gosh what a great question because i want to say right off the bat that comparisons are odious mm, and so yeah. i don't compare my my journey with others but in the sense of yes i have known closeted clergy um who did spend i believe their entire careers closeted and I believe it exacts a, such a cost. There is such mm. a cost to not fully being yourself. Um, I believe that those folks believed that um, what they were doing was important and they were called to it yeah. and it was a price they chose to pay. There's a price on either side, right? There is a, a there is a cost either way. Absolutely, Joe. There's a cost because I've lived both sides of it. There's a cost of not fully being yourself, and there's a cost of then fully being yourself and not having a home any longer mm. and losing friends. Um all of this happened while I was still at Boston University because I stayed on to do um, a sacred theology master that's usually a one-year degree. I took two to do that and, um, and then went into a doctoral program. So I, I had support um, at BU as well as... Uh, some really, um, <laughs> I'm just going to call it real non-support. Mm. Um, and I had to continue to just make my way through it all. Um, and got to know 
younger folks, a lot of younger folks um, in, in the Sacred Worth group that um, formed and reformed and formed and reformed, um, who were struggling with the same things. Hmm. But as, as that particular institution evolved um, slowly again, being out wasn't as big a deal or, or as big a threat to one's ability to get ordained. But again, still, you had to play the games, mm. um, toe the line, don't say the right words, and don't say other words. So there's still a cost. There is still yeah. a cost. Um, and, you know, <laughs> I just don't think, <laughs> let me just say this so incredibly clearly, that, that someone's sexual identity, gender identity, oh my gosh, any of those just should have zero to do with whether a person is qualified and called to be a minister. Yeah. I guess that's about as plainly as I can speak it. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That my call to ministry didn't have a thing to do with anyone else's identity. Of course it had something to do with mine. It's part of me. However, for me, it never, it never was, I'm going to go in and teach people how to be gay or, <laughs> or how to like gay people. Um, no, no, we're, we're called to love each other as human beings. It's, it's what, what appears to be so simple for me, I know isn't simple sure. for, for especially for systems. And, you know, the Methodist system has its way. Um, uh, and I can jump and say that the one longer term, I was, I was three years uh, at that United Methodist Church. I was two and a half years starting in uh, 2019 as an interim um, minister at a UCC church hmm. in New England. And um, there are things about UCC that I absolutely love. I really do. I just resonate with covenant and accountability and uh, autonomy and all of that. Hmm. Um, at the same time, it's still a system. It's a totally different system from the UMC. Absolutely and totally different. But systems are systems. And, and they... Uh, they create, um, as systems do, how do we make it look like it fits all sizes Ooh. when it never, ever does? Um, and so, and so that, that's uh, my very, very simple, um, <laughs> my very, very simple little call out to, um, or call out upon systems 
Yeah. Um, So speaking of systems, mm. how did the United Methodist system eject you from itself? Can you talk a little bit about the process that um, from you getting married and I assume coming out to being no longer a candidate, no longer being at your church? Okay. It didn't go in that order at all. Oh, okay. Um, (laughs) Well, sort of it did. Um, All right. I realized after the, the, you're the best pastor card um, that I could not do this. I just mm-hmm. could not continue. So I went to, uh, to someone who um, had been highly placed in the United Methodist church um, for advice um, and met with, met with that person for about a year getting ready Um, myself and readying the church for my leaving without Mm. them ever knowing any of it. (sighs) They could not know. And I I just got to say, this was, this was such a small town that um, there there wasn't even a supermarket in the town. Mm. Um, So uh, when (laughs) There is no way for one or two or a very small group of people to know without everyone knowing. Yeah. And I didn't want that to happen. Um, my hope was, again, for that, that equitable thing where everybody heard at the same time and could remain together as a group. Uh, and that's what I called for. I, I preached a sermon called there is no right way to do a wrong thing and um (laughs) and in which i identified what my wrong thing was which was to not tell the truth um and said that i believed that i had not told the truth in the shadow of the wrong thing of the united methodist church what which was to automatically exclude me and others from ministry And um, I begged them to stay together, to be with each other. And um, I, I was very clear that I might not see them the following week. Um, as soon as I left the church, um, right before I gave a benediction, but left and went to my office and did not have anything more. I did not have any more. Um, contact with them, I made the call to the acting district superintendent and told the, told that one what I had done. And um, it was amazingly fast, Joe. It was amazingly fast. Um, by the next day, I met with two district superintendents and um, I was allowed back into my office to find that someone had already been in and uh what? yes and had um yeah well we'll we'll just move right on from that one uh but then i was only allowed to grab a couple of things and it was four months before i was allowed back to clean out my office um in that time um an interim was brought in and i started into conversations um i don't want to get into the weeds of it all but um sure. A uh, a friendly 
minister filed a complaint with the bishop because I was a licensed local pastor. I had no recourse. Um, right. So somebody filed a complaint. And um, <laughs> and so meetings meetings happened um, over, over a few months between uh, um, that bishop and uh, the DS from my district and, um, and my support team. And, um, we, we had, uh, one public talk, uh, the Bishop and I, and I just realized that there was such a power imbalance that, um, it just wasn't going to work. And it wasn't that, that we didn't want to talk to each other and talk publicly. It was that, um, you know, the, the sides were pretty stark at that point. I want in, you don't want me in. It's that simple. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, so, oh, my goodness. I finally, um, finally just said, I don't think we're going to be able to, to meet publicly. I appreciate being able to do it. I am just going to get back to, uh, to my studies and, um, and do what I can do. Um, because I'm still called to ministry. So mm. there may be gaps in that. I'm, I'm willing to try to fill them in. But um, so the first time anybody heard that I was out publicly um, from that church was the day I gave my sermon. Whew. Did they know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I believe they they kind of know. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And no one ever asked me directly Hmm. because had they asked me directly, I don't think I would have been able to, uh, to lie. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the person who did come and and sort of challenge me really didn't want to ask me directly. Um, because I think she liked me. It was the fact of having a gay minister wouldn't be right in her world. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. And so there's so much more that needs to happen than just saying, yeah, well, now you can be ordained. Um, and that's where I think the transformation part of ministry becomes really, really important. Um Transforming self and encouraging others into transformational lives. Um, wow, that people can change. And yeah. when people change, then churches change. Yes. Um, I haven't met a program yet that changes a church. Who? Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, and, and the amount of money that gets spent developing new programs, I'm sorry, because I know that there may be program geeks out there listening to this. It's, it, I'm not trying to insult anyone. I just have not met a program that, that transforms lives. Well, because programs or, are out here trying to be one size fits all and transformation I, is so contextual. It's incredibly contextual. Um, and it can happen and it can happen even if it's in tiny little increments, it can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the church where I spent my interim, 
um, is an aging population, was an aging population. They now have a settled minister, and I know that younger folk are kind of finding their way to the church. There is a way to balance the needs. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work because folks who are elderly don't have the energy to do as much of the physicality of being church, Mm -hmm. but they can change, but they can change. This church went from, um, well, let me just say that I was the first out gay minister in that town that I know of. Wow. Yeah. Um, And this is in 2019. So, and that's in all of the churches. Um, And that mattered. It mattered to them in the hiring process. And so when I kind of pushed them a little bit farther, uh, well, yes, okay, we'll go. Pastor Annie, you can go and, and march with the UCC and the Boston Pride. I said, well, who's coming with me? <laughs> one, per- one person came, and then, of course, COVID hit, so I can't, right. I can't. But during COVID, we decided, okay, we're going to do a one-hour standout in front of the church because it was on a fairly busy road. And I had 20 people show up in their colors and waving flags and just having a marvelous time for an hour. And we had cars because we had told people we're going to do this. We had some cars from a town away who just kept going back and forth and honking their horn and waving and encouraging us. That's folks going from, well, yeah, we'll, 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 we, we don't, you know, we welcome everybody to, Oh, no, we get it. We need to stand outside and do something. Yes. Yes. That is transformation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and transformation doesn't go away real quickly, I don't think. Um, that's my take anyway. Once you've, once you've um, staked your, uh, the, your journey on following something, then you're going to keep following it to the best of your ability. Yeah. And, uh, and then, my gosh, you know, we're talking about LGBTQ, but the intersectionality of it all matters so much to me, Joe, that hmm. if, if we can stretch beyond we, whoever we are, if one can stretch to include a group, then what about another group and another and another or another person? I was born into a time when there was deep normativity. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I'm not saying there isn't still now, but there's a whole lot more questioning of it. Yeah. Yeah. There would not have been a word called intersectionality when I was a kid. Mm. You know, you, there were ways that you behaved, you know, that somebody who was right-handed was really normal. Left-handers, well, they were a little strange. Ambidextrous, oh, no, you don't belong. 
to really, really, really bring it into those. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> to, into those terms. And, and so with each personal transformation that I have made, having grown up white and God, I'm still white and I'm going to be white tomorrow and I'm going to be white till the end of my life. But mm-hmm. if I'm not doing my intersectional work, which goes beyond LGBTQ and race, it goes to economics, it mm-hmm. goes to all areas of access within society and how some people belong and some don't. And, you know, I, I, I got to give a shout out to, to Orwell because I read Animal Farm when I was in high school, it is so much more brutal and tragic to me now Hmm. because it's still very true that some pigs is more equal than other pigs. And that is part of my life's work is to try to open up the barn and try to help Others understand that opening their own barn isn't going to kill them, and it's not going to take anywhere near as much from them as their, as one's own closed-mindedness, closed heart, closed soul, if you will, mm. takes from them every day. So that's what the hell this pastor is. Um, <laughs> Uh, trying to be, trying to be, always trying. Um, and some people will tell you that I am very trying. Um, <laughs> and well, that's, that's also a part of even sitting in the same room with myself sometimes, um, of preaching sermons that I never wanted to write or preach. Hmm. But that was what appeared in the moment. Yeah. I, so I really, I, I want to both hear about uh, Church Within a Church and that journey toward ordination <laughs> and and all that. And then also to talk kind of nuts and bolts about how you can be a pastor and a preacher with this call. Um, and I think <sighs> we're going to save that for part two of this episode. <laughs> so thank you for everything that you have shared in part one. Listeners, make sure that you come back for part two on Thursday, but I'm going to give us a quick sign off. Thank you so much for listening, listeners. Uh, This has been an episode of What the Hell is a Pastor? We are Joe and Annie, and we will see you next time. What the Hell is a Pastor? is a part of the Disruptive Disciples podcast network. Our theme song is written by Joe Schoenwolf, performed by Joe Schoenwolf, Ian Uriola, and Paul Uriola, and produced by Paul Uriola. Find us across the internet at WTHIAP or visit us at WTHIAP.com to get connected to our Patreon, merch, playlist, and plenty of other exciting things. Thanks for listening and find your truth, friends. <laughs>